Our text for today is from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Read that again. Ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Well, today Johnny wants to be a dinosaur. Mary wants to be a unicorn. And with all this going on in our society today, shall we pretend that, in fact, Johnny is a dinosaur and Mary is a unicorn? Or maybe even assist them in having surgery to become such. That's where our government seems to be headed today and the events of today. A mother states that before her daughter could talk, she told her she wanted to be a boy. And so by the time he she was five years old, she became a he in their dress and in their acceptance. A woman declared that she wanted to be the first black woman on the Supreme Court, but she couldn't define the word woman, though she wanted to be the first black woman. The woman of the year this year was a man. There's been a soaring number of accounts of parents that are being attacked by their, physically attacked by their children. A few years ago, we were shocked when a child sued his parents and now they, excuse me, now they are physically abusing their parents. If Satan can transform himself into a serpent, and then into an angel of light, perhaps with his assistance, then Johnny can become a dinosaur and Mary can become a unicorn or maybe a pony. I had a granddaughter that wanted to play pony and be a pony. <clears throat> thanks, good, thanks to God, it was not misguided as it is today, so that if they want to be what they want to be, they can declare they are, and it must be accepted by others. When children in kindergarten are being encouraged to decide what gender they want to be, why not then change the species, become a puppy, or become a pony? Well, I hope it gets the gist of what I am trying to say. The enemies of God have chosen, excuse me, the destruction of distinction, destruction of distinction, as their primary tool for their attack upon the things of God and upon God's program and plan for humanity. 
They are, <clears throat> they have attacked the human race in a variety of ways uh, in the distinction of choices that we have. <clears throat> Excuse me just a minute. in the distinction of choices that we have in volition, in marriage, in family, and uh, through the government as well as in the church. God established distinctions and differences so that we might not be confused about our roles and about what God has designed for us. But today, marriage is under severe attack with 45% of all marriages in the United States ending in divorce. And while that number is down a bit from back in 1981, where 58% of American divorces, no, it's 53% of American divorces ended uh, of marriages ended in divorce. I've got a Biden complex this morning. <clears throat> we find that the offsetting factor from the number of divorces being down uh, is cohabitation without marriage. Why bother to get married? Just live together. And then if it doesn't work out, you don't have to get a divorce. You can just go your separate ways. As a matter of fact, the number of couples who cohabit outnumber the number of couples that get married. That's an alarming number to realize what's going on in our society today. The number is 17 million there are 15, no, 13.6 million single parent homes in America today. As a matter of fact, among Afro Americans, 57.7% of those homes do not have a father living in the house. The percentage of marriages has declined Ended that end in divorce from 1914, the percentage of marriages that end in divorce was 1%. I remember back early in my ministry, as I did premarital counseling, I identified at that point, and this was in the 60s, that the divorce rate was one for every three marriages. But if the family, if the couple believed in God, went to church on a weekly basis and read their Bible and prayed together, the divorce rate was 1 in 14,000. That figure is no longer valid in our society today. The statistics that I have shared with you this morning are a result of a very deliberate and subversive plot on the part of Satan to destroy the divine institutes that God established. And he established those for the welfare of the race 
And so you can see where we're headed. Satan has been able to find willing cohorts to line up with his agenda in the way of politics, in the way of economics, and in the way of religion. Those three arenas that we cited last week where the events of the tribulation are going to take place here on the earth in those three arenas of politics, economics, and religion, they have already been infiltrated and the stage is ready to go. Only 81% of Americans today say they believe in God. Now that may sound like a large number based upon the ones you encounter, but remember this is simply a belief in God. That would include Muslims and Hindus and all of the other uh, isms that should have been wasms that we find going on in our society today. The number among Democrats, we'll not get too political here, but the number of Democrats believing in God is 72%. The number of Republicans believing in God is 98%. And when we talk about the difference between liberalism and conservatism, we find that among the liberals, those who identify themselves as liberals, 62% believe in God. Young adults, 68% believe in God. That's all based on a Gallup poll that I looked at this week, and the Gallup poll stated that these figures are much less when it comes to the matter of attending church. We find that although 52% of the population retains membership in a church, only 27% of the population attend church on a regular basis. Today's Father's Day. The current events that are going on around us declare there is an urgency to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Up until recently, the attack of these institutions was very subtle, but in the last three or four years, we have seen an escalation where they are blatant and open in their attack against Christians, in their attack against the the nuclear family, in their attack against the divine institutions that God established. How in the world did we get to where we are today with all that is taking place? Well, the core of our society, as God established it, was to be the family. And we're given volition in order that we might make choices. And then God presented the guidelines that were to function and operate in the divine institutions he established. Marriage was intended to establish a a complement of completeness with distinct roles on the part of the man and the woman in order for the two to become one. If they both have the same roles, there's a handicap in becoming a complete one as God instituted it. Government was initially established to be a theocracy. That is, 
one God and nation under God, serving God and following and adopting His principles. The church was established to evangelize and then to nurture and admonish individuals and families together that there might be a recognition of God and a form of holiness and godliness in society. The five divine institutions define the distinctions that are required for a free and peaceful and functional society today. The distinctions clearly define the role of the principles and the means by which we are to live in harmony. The church then is to be an institution along with the government to give guideline and perpetuity to freedom that we have sought for. I mentioned the core of society is the family as God structured it, and that has become today the focal point of attack. Attack upon gender, and attack upon the nuclear family, attack upon the children and their reliance upon their parents and their independence, and the takeover of the nurture and admonition of the children on the part of the schools and the government itself. And as I have repeatedly said, when we turn over the rearing of the children to the government, it's generally the village idiot that is in charge and projecting that agenda. If we want an example for what a godly father is, we can see in the scripture it talks about a godly woman in Proverbs 31. It says a godly woman and then it lists the various attributes of it. When we look to the role of the father to see what is designed there, we can find a good example and a proper application of that example will help us in observing Father's Day this year and to know what God would have us to do that we might salvage some in the days that are ahead. There are seven attributes that form the character of God. God is sovereign, meaning He has absolute authority. God is omnipotent, meaning that He has all power. God is righteous, having perfect justice, perfect truth, and immutability or unchangeableness. God is eternal, having neither a beginning nor an end. God is omniscient, having all knowledge and full understanding. God is omnipresent, in attendance everywhere, all the time. God is love, having self-sacrificial love that manifests itself in giving. That's our Heavenly Father's attributes. The attributes reveal to us the very character of God, and they are an encouragement to us as to what we can expect from Him and our dependency and reliance upon Him day by day. Understanding the objective 
then of God's character, we look at how that might be applied and related in some way or some fashion to earthly fathers. And we find that God has given to the believer the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit indwells the believer to equip the believer so he can meet the standards that God has established for him and to complete the work and do that which God has set forth for us. So when we think of the attributes of God, we recognize that man does not measure up to that. And then when we see that God has given us the Holy Spirit to enable us, then that puts even the attributes of God in a little different focus. And I would like for us to look at that today. You have heard me repeatedly say that God never calls us to a task. That He does not provide the ability, the resources, and the opportunity in which we might accomplish that which He has given us to do. And so God has provided us the resources and He's provided us the opportunity and He's given us the guidelines as to how we can have men who live godly lives. And it's through the saturation of the individual by the Spirit of God and through the indwelling Holy Spirit, the attributes of a godly father can be recognized. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law. In John chapter 15, Jesus identifies Himself as the vine, and He tells us the Father is the husbandman. And Jesus wrote or stated this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, He taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, He purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean, through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. In order for us to understand the guidelines that God has set out and be able to productively bear fruit, we must abide in Christ. In order to bear fruit, we must be pruned by the husbandman, the father, from time to time. As we maintain fellowship with God and the power of the Holy Spirit operating in us, we are able to step up to the calling that we have as fathers and hold 
together that unity that God established as the family in order that we might have a workable society in which to function. It's our intent. Then this morning to examine the production of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, that which the Holy Spirit produces in us as we allow Him control over us so that we can meet the standard and the calling that is so necessary today for godly fathers to step up. Let me briefly review the attributes of the fruit then that identify what a godly father is. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against these there is no law. It begins with the word love. The word in the original text, the Greek word is agape. This is a self-sacrificial love that manifests itself in giving and loves continuously regardless of the response. When the Holy Spirit has control of the life of a man, that man becomes long-tempered, He treats the object of love in grace. He's not motivated by self-interest. He does not boast of himself to the disadvantage of the object that he claims to love. He is not inflated with self. He does not bring shame on himself by his own behavior. He does not plot to attain his own goals, and is not aroused to anger. He does not keep an account of the evil that's done to him. He does not express joy when the object of love is the victim of injustice. He does express joy when the object of love receives that which is due them. He protects the object love by covering that object and taking the blows that are intended for the object that is loved. He puts trust in the object loved, has confident expectation in the object loved, and abides at ease under all things. A godly man, the beginning of the recognition and the accomplishment of that objective To be such begins with love, a self-sacrificial love that is long-tempered, that treats the object loved in grace, that's not motivated by self-interest, that does not boast of himself to the disadvantage of the one that's loved, is not inflated, the actual word is over-inflated, with uh, self-goals and recognition doesn't work to attain his own goals, but the goals of both together, the object that is loved and himself. Does not keep an account of the evil that's done. Doesn't express joy when there's injustice done to the object love, but does rejoice when the object love receives that which is due it. Protects the object love by covering that object with himself and taking the blows that are intended 
for the object loved and then puts trust in the object loved, has confident expectation in the object loved, and abides at ease under all circumstances. Godly Father is marked first by love. The second is the word joy. And the word joy is translated from the Greek word kara. It identifies the condition of inner happiness that is accompanied by a sense of completeness and fulfillment. Translated from the word kara, and it's much more than an emotion. It actually refers to the condition of inner happiness that is accompanied by a sense of completeness and fulfillment. In his epistle, James wrote this in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. So joy is the state of happiness that's based on being complete and entire, wanting nothing. Now, of course, that means there's some adjustment to our want-tos, guys, as we go through life day by day so that we recognize that we need not want anything. Love and then joy, and then peace. The word peace is from the Greek word arene, and it's a relationship of harmony. Peace with God is available to every man, woman, boy, or girl that will call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Peace from God is available to all believers, and the peace of God is only available to those who have established peace with God and have received peace from God. And now they have the peace of God that's produced in their lives as they are controlled by the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace. And then we have the attribute of long-suffering. Makrothumia is the Greek word which means long-tempered. Now, that doesn't mean that after you lose it, you lose it for a long time. It means it's a long time before you lose it. And by the way, while we might use that losing our temper, it's really not a matter of losing. It's a matter of discarding it. That we might do our thing and what we really would like to see take place. This Greek word, makrothumia, encompasses the idea of forbearance, along with patience. It emphasizes the concept of patiently holding back any form of vengeance. Patiently holding back any form of vengeance, of punishment or retaliation. It's self-restraint in the face of provocation or very trying circumstances. It's that quality which does not surrender to circumstance or does not succumb under trial. 
Now this is the opposite then of depend of despondency and uh, is associated with confidence, not necessarily confidence in yourself, but confidence in the power and presence of God through His Spirit as He operates in us. Long-suffering, long-tempered. That's the opposite of having a short fuse. The word gentleness is translated from kratos and it means gracious disposition and attitude. It's a noun that identifies a quality of the believer that is controlled by the Holy Spirit, an attribute of a godly father. It's based on the root word charis. Charistatas is based on the word charis. Charis is the word that is translated in our Bibles, grace. It implies then a combination of being virtuous, of being mild, of being pleasant, of being kind, of being serviceable, both in quality and in action for the godly man. Use of this word then emphasizes, as I indicated, the grace concept that is given to us throughout the New Testament. If we simply learn to grace others, this would be automatic and reflexive in our life. But you notice it's accompanied by love, by joy, by peace, and then long-suffering, so that then in our behavior we are manifesting graciousness and uh, that which is good, and that which is kind. This element of gentleness is a gracious disposition and attitude that expresses itself in actions. It's not just saying I have this attitude, but there is the expression of it in actions that are described by words such as graciousness, easy, good, goodness, kindness, and better. Then we add to those attributes of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, and gentleness, we add the quality of goodness. That word is from the Greek word agathosune, and it means that which is good in character, that which is beneficial in its effect. It emphasizes a moral quality. The distinction between the word gentleness and the word goodness is a distinction worthy of note because some of the modern translations have inverted those and call goodness gentleness and then simply emphasize goodness again. But there is a difference. This goodness is a compound of that word of truth and that which God provides through the Holy Spirit. Gentleness is a gracious disposition and attitude and emphasizes kindness in dealing with others. But when we get to the word goodness, it can encompass the idea of tough love. It does not necessarily emphasize, well, that word does not emphasize gentle aspect 
but could be in a harsh environment. And uh, it has to be balanced, of course, with the word gentleness that precedes it. But we would describe it in the term that is used together as having tough love. Love that does that which is good and beneficial to the object loved rather than just doing that which the object loved wants. The word faith is improperly translated. It is the word faithfulness. Faithfulness. We don't receive faith as an element of the fruit of the Spirit, but faithfulness is produced in the godly man who is controlled by the Spirit. It's produced only when we're under the control of the Holy Spirit. And this is not a verb, but it expresses the action as a noun identifying the position of standing in firmness in being faithful. A faithful and wise servant, the Scripture says, is the one that continues to be a truster, a faither, to do that which the Lord has commanded without questioning the outcome of it, simply faithful. The unfaithful servant in the Bible is described as one who procrastinates Concerning service, remember the unfaithful steward took the talent and wrapped it in a napkin and buried it in the ground. And so the unfaithful servant is a procrastinator concerning service. Now I had to throw concerning service in there because my wife tends to think that I procrastinate. And I've assured her that I would like to procrastinate, but I keep putting it off. So... This word identifies that very concept of service and procrastinating service as your steward. The faithful servant invests his time, his ability, and his resources wisely. The emphasis of the unfaithful servant being then upon procrastination concerning service leads as well to the preservation rather than the multiplication. I'll preserve what the Master gave me. I'll keep it intact instead of investing it. God has given us the directions that our lives are to be that of an investor and we are to invest those things. Faithfulness is a principle regardless of whatever trust or the degree of trust it might be, it's a principle. It means to put our weight or our dependency upon it. Faithfulness is single-mindedness. We can't live for self and live for God at the same time. Our self has to be surrendered to God in order for us to attain that which God wants us to attain. And that's what's really beneficial in our life and comes back to us. God's objective rather than our own. Your role in eternity is going to be determined by your faithfulness here upon the earth. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and meekness. 
Meekness comes from the Greek word protes, and it's an attitude that reflects an understanding that who we are and what we have is not based upon ourselves, but based upon the provision and grace of God. It's an attitude, if you will, of being properly oriented to grace itself. Meekness is an attitude that is displayed in action toward ourselves, in action toward God, and in action toward others. It's not a downcast individual who dares look you in the eye and wants to emphasize to you repeatedly how humble he is, but it's one who manifests that humbleness in his daily walk of life. And then we come to temperance. Can't hardly read temperance in my day without thinking of liquor. <laughs> it has nothing to do with that. The word in the Greek uh, is better translated self-control. It almost seems the opposite of being under God's control. But what the Word teaches is that as we submit ourselves to the leadership of God and surrender ourselves to the will of God, we then gain a position where we control our own weakness through His Spirit that lives in us. We have this available to us, this resource of the Spirit and the power of God, but we shove Him out the door and do our own thing too often. The Greek word is actually a compound made up of Greek preposition in and the word kratos, and it it identifies in strength. We are able to resist temptation only as we allow the Holy Spirit the control of our life. And through our repeated process of allowing the Holy Spirit the control of our life, we are able then to have godly lives. Lives that manifest love, joy, long-suffering, peace. Well, it was... uh, Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. And then the verse from which these attributes come concludes with a statement, against such there is no law. Law and commandments cannot develop this life that is described by these attributes that are here. It comes down to our free will and our allowing the Holy Spirit that daily maintenance of our life. Our submission to a higher law, the law of the Spirit-controlled life. In this position, the Father is equipped then to be responsive to the command that was given in our text. You fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 
provoke not to wrath. The Greek text says not to unjustly irritate so as to embitter. That can be a challenge. And certainly it's a challenge that's not easily attainable unless we have that yieldness to the Holy Spirit and the development of those attributes of a godly father, we are more equipped then to do that. And when we fail, then we have stepped outside the parameters of the control that the Holy Spirit gives us. I'm handicapped in having one of my children this morning in the service when I talk about that. Provoke them not to wrath. That is to unjustly irritate them, to embitter them, but rather to nurture them. The Greek text says, but nurture them in discipline and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up with that in nurture. The word here means to promote health and strength in all the realms of one's life. Discipline is instruction through discipline. Admonition is to put something, plant something in their mind, and that which we are to plant is that which is from the source of the Lord. Your fathers, don't unjustly irritate your children so as to embitter them, but Promote their health and strength through instruction accompanied by discipline and by putting in their minds the teachings of the Lord. Fathers that are controlled by the Holy Spirit are fathers then who discipline their own lives first by applying the principles and the teachings of Christ to their life And then when they fall short of those principles and attitudes, they privately confess those failures to the Lord in order to be restored to fellowship and have that channel of power from the Holy Spirit once again released in their life so they can have love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 18 says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The word filled is translated from the Greek word pleruste. It means saturated to the point of control. It's not talking about filling a vessel with substance. It's talking about being saturated with that substance so that it controls your life. The wick in that oil lamp over on that table is a much better illustration than to fill a vessel. We're to be saturated to the point of control by the Holy Spirit. So adhering and so acknowledging our weakness and our failure when we are guilty and then operating in the power and the strength of the Spirit. Personal sin in our life takes that control away from the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about quenching the Holy Spirit and grieving the Holy Spirit. And the word quench is best illustrated by taking a water hose and folding it together to shut off the power and 
That's what we do when there is personal sin in our life that's not been acknowledged to the Father. And that's released then once again when we confess our sin. Godly fathers are fathers that maintain that discipline so they can exhibit self-sacrificial love. A love that manifests itself in giving and continues regardless of the response. Godly fathers are fathers that maintain that personal discipline so they maintain inner happiness accompanied by a sense of completeness and full fullness so that they rest in a harmonious relationship so that they are long-tempered so that they have a gracious disposition and attitude, so they are governed by that which is good in character, beneficial in its effect, and emphasizes a moral quality. So that faithfulness is descriptive of their character. So that their attitude reflects an understanding of who and what they are in Christ and what that person has as a result of grace and not on their own accomplishment, but upon God's grace provision. The circumstances that we are witnessing in our society today that I enumerated for you in the beginning of our message today are in harmony with Bible prophecy and the urgency that the events display to us give testimony. These truly are end times. As a result, the mission that has been assigned to the church is more urgent than it ever has been in the past. And this effective completion of that mission to which God has called us, then we need men to lead the way in spirit-filled godliness, in love, in joy, in peace, in long-suffering, in gentleness, in goodness, in meekness, and self-control. The hope for our families is dependent upon men who have the godly attributes of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And it's not something that's not available to all of us, but is available to everyone who is born again, who names the name of Jesus as Savior, the control of the Holy Spirit is available to us every day, all day long. We make faulty choices that interrupt that control. We need immediately to restore that through the confession of our sin. And if we have godly men with these attributes that are don't have to be learned but are given and released through the Holy Spirit as we balance these things out, then we will see a change in our local families and perhaps even in our nation if we have godly men who are committed to the Spirit-controlled life. But it all begins with salvation. The Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says, With the heart man believes unto righteousness, 
but it's with the mouth confession is made to salvation for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks for Your goodness and Your mercy, for Your grace plan and Your provision. Help us to be receptive to it and willing followers of that calling. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.